Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. Again, always to, to service the customer versus trying to go after a certain customer. Hey, my name is Felix. I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each and every week, we learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts and entrepreneurs like you. In this episode, you'll learn how to create and use customer profiles, how to stay disciplined when running a business, and how to improve your website's navigation to improve conversion rates. Today, I'm joined by Gloria Huang from Thousand. Thousand is on a mission to rebrand the bike helmet to help save lives and reconnect people to their cities. And they make a bike helmet that you actually want to wear. And we're starting in 2015 and based out of Los Angeles, California. Welcome, Gloria. Thanks, Felix. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so tell us the story behind the, the brand name. What does what uh, the brand name Thousand mean? Yeah, so originally how it started was uh, we started our product on a Kickstarter. And when we started it, basically we needed a thousand backers to be able to fund the project. Uh, we, we ended up getting a lot more than that, but that's that's where the name came from. Got it, makes sense. And w- before you even started on this path, what, what made you decide to take on the, the, the challenge of designing uh, and, and producing bike helmets? Sure, yeah, Thousand, you know, Thousand started for me because I was a longtime biker in Los Angeles, and I never really wore a bike helmet. Um, if I'm honest, I really just thought they were kind of goofy looking. Mm-hmm. But um, a longtime friend and mentor of mine actually passed away from a bad bike accident in New York City. It was a head first injury, and he wasn't wearing a bike helmet. And for for me at the time, I kind of thought, man, you know, to be responsible myself and be responsible to the people around me, I really need to start wearing a bike helmet. So I went on the market to try to find something I liked, and I think I found a couple of things that I thought were okay, and I pro- honestly, I probably bought something. Um, but I found myself never wearing it. And more than anything, I actually found myself biking less and less. And my background is actually from Tom's. So I worked on the philanthropy side of Tom's for like five years. And uh, the thought was, you know, if you can actually rebrand the bike helmet, you could one, help save a lot of lives. But then two, you can actually help encourage cycling within cities. Because uh, one thing we've found in our research is one of the biggest barriers for getting people out and riding is they just don't feel safe. So we, we started on a mission to, again, make a bike helmet you actually want to wear. Uh, and hopefully that's what we've made today. Yeah, and you know, New York City, that's where, that's where I'm based out right now. And you're right, we, I see certain people out, especially with the whole you know, city bikes and the, the move for a lot of cities into bike sharing. You, it's surprising to see how many people don't, don't have helmets, especially riding around a city where there's so many, uh, so many pedestrians you got to avoid, other cyclists, other cars. It's, it's a very uh, dangerous. So I think that the, 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 the market certainly exists for, for someone to come in to help solve that problem. So you mentioned a little bit about your background. You worked uh, in the philanthropy side of Tom's is there do you have a background in producing products too like how did you begin down the path of creating a product like this you know what yeah yes and no so my background at Tom's was um actually I was in philanthropy but at, at one point I think everyone realized I was really entrepreneurial so every time there was a big problem in our department I would always try to fix it so while I was in the philanthropy department, I kind of worked across many different sectors. So I worked in e-commerce, I worked in product development, um, I worked in just email marketing. So I, I kind of had a, I kind of had the chance 
kind of learn every single part of the business. And on the product development side, while I was at Tom's, I helped launch our first kind of, we called it a giving shoe menu. So it's basically um, a product line of all the philanthropic shoes we're giving away to, to countries in need. So that was my kind of first dip of toe into product development. Mm-hmm. Um, and just understanding kind of the product development life cycle, what are the major keystone milestones? And again, like kind of how do you get through working with a factory and launching a product, I kind of applied the same knowledge to a bike helmet. It was a lot different, it turns out, but that's how I started. Yeah, and, and you know, speaking of it being different, I'm sure there are things that are also the same that you were able to recognize in your time at Tom's and now when you launched your, your own business. Were there certain things that stood out right away that trends or patterns that you saw in a you know, very established company versus now the startup that you have? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. Like you realize some of the fundamentals always apply. Like, again, managing a well-run project, hitting timelines, making sure things are on time of quality. Like that's all achieved by, again, having a plan, doing good preparation, and then making sure executing. One difference in the startup world is like you just don't know anything in the sense that like there's no there's no data to kind of go off of. Sometimes the best point of view is not to even go off of like best practices. Sometimes mm-hmm. the best point of view is to say, okay, what's best for cash or what's best for um, growth or what's best for conversion. Sometimes the goal is to say, hey, instead of um, trying to build something to last and to pick up incremental revenue this year. And so you have a strategy where like, again, you're very, you go very wide um, in a startup because you're really cash conserv- conservative and you, you're really constrained to a degree. Your, your solutions and your questions are much different. So your question in a startup would be, how do I most efficiently use my digital marketing budget to uh, maximize conversion while also building a really healthy brand? But a well-established company might say, how do I um, reach the most amount mm-hmm. of new customers at the top of my funnel? So I think more than anything, because your stage is different, your questions are different. Right, that makes sense, and, and you, you kind of have a little bit less uh, room for for error when you are when you when you are more cash strapped. So the focus is sometimes uh, you have a shorter runway, so you have to get things done, and and basically cash coming into the business a lot sooner. You know the luxury of of you know much more like you're saying upper funnel strategies that a larger company would have. Oh, yeah. Right. So when you decide, okay, I'm going to, this is something that I'm passionate about. This is something I want to, to pursue. What were the first steps that you took towards turning your, your idea into a reality? Yeah. You know, the first time it was, it all happened kind of quick. Once I kind of decided, you know, I want to make this bike helmet. Um, then very next week I wrote down a business plan and six or nine months later I had a prototype. And for me, it's just kind of, I just wrote down the steps I knew it would take to get there. So I said, okay, to make this bike helmet, I'm going to have to find someone who knows how to make a bike helmet. I'm going to have mm-hmm. to understand a concept. I'm going to understand. I'm going to have to understand what type of manufacturer I need to work with. I need to understand safety compliance. Um, so once I kind of understood these are kind of my major milestones, I kind of put together a work plan to say, okay, so these are the, these are the things I'm going to have to hit in order to get to my goal. Um, so again, for me, it was pretty. I'm going to say it was pretty planned and methodical, mm-hmm. as much as you can plan and be methodical. That's something you're trying to start from nothing. Right. And because you've had the experience now of creating this business plan and going through it, if you were to do it again, what are some of the main questions that, that you think that you need to answer in a business plan, whether these are the questions that you did actually put into the business plan or now looking back, these are questions that you should have answered? Yeah. I mean, for me, I think the one key thing I think we did really well was we were always super, super focused on our customer. Who is our customer? 
um, and what do they want? Uh, at the at the beginning when we were doing this, everyone wanted when we first launched Thousand, like the tech boom was kind of going crazy. Everyone was doing apps. Everyone was doing mm-hmm. integrated technologies into into consumer goods, and um, so when I told people I want to make this bike helmet that I think you would actually want to wear, really style driven, really functional and convenient. Um, everyone kept on saying, okay, so where's the Bluetooth and where's the integrated technology? Mm-hmm. Don't you think you're kind of behind trend on doing something so analog? And from my point of view, I, I really didn't think I was off trend. I thought I was right on trend just because from my point of view, uh, that's my customer didn't want Bluetooth connectivity into their helmet. My, my customer didn't want, um, you know, blinking lights or something, a, a smart technology. They really just wanted something that was functional, uh, that was convenient to get them from point A to B that was style driven, that was high quality. So for me, I think so much of the reason we had early success was because the product, they said, I got it. I knew exactly who that's for. And uh, a lot of the times they said, that's for me. And how did you learn all this? Like, how did you know who your customer was and, and what they wanted? You know, a lot of it was asking people. Um, in the beginning, I did a bunch of surveys with my friends. Uh, I, I think I had Survey Monkeys where I sent it out to 50 of my friends. I wrote up consumer profiles to write down, like, this is who my consumer probably would be. Would be. So when we were designing the product, I kind of always fil- I always filtered it through the survey I had done, and I had always and I filtered it through the um, the customer profiles I had written. And I asked myself the question: Okay, would Eric in Seattle, age 28, buy this thing that I'm trying to build right now? And if the answer was no, then I would retool, even if the person giving me the advice was had awesome advice. Mm. And what kind of questions were you asking in, in this this survey? I think that this is an important step, and it's it's um, it, it's uh, certainly uh, speaks to your uh, foresight into creating this and and starting with the survey. But I think a lot of businesses that are that have already started can still benefit from going back and really understanding their customers and going through a surveying approach like this. Like, what are some questions that you think are important to ask when you are trying to learn more about your customer? Yeah, for me, I think the biggest thing is like, what do you care about? Um, what's important to you from a product perspective, but also an emotional perspective. So again, I think my market traditionally in bike helmets uh, had always really been interested on the weight of a helmet and then the price of a helmet and then maybe the style of a helmet. But when I kind of talked to all of my customers in this survey, I realized that that whole hierarchy was backwards for, for my customers. I realized style was number one for them, then price and then weight. So again, everything we built was around what the, the customer always valued the most from, from a um, product perspective, but also from an emotional perspective. I asked questions in our survey around, why don't you wear a bike helmet? Like, why, what feeling do you have when you put on a bike helmet? And a lot of people kind of said, more than anything, I just feel kind of dorky. Or more than anything, I just kind of feel like it's a real pain just to carry them around. And when I started hearing those answers, I realized building a product isn't just a, a technical act, it's mm-hmm. also an emotional act. So figuring out like how a customer would feel if they're holding your product or touching it for the first time or putting it on, what are the little friction points you're reducing for them that they probably would have never noticed 
is really important for a customer latching on and being a, a loyal customer at the end of the day. And, and those are things I really always tried to think through when, when designing kind of our first version of the helmet. Right. And and you touched on, on on one point that I think was really important to repeat is just the emotional aspect. How how does it make, how does your product make them feel? And, and like you're saying, step away from the technical specifications. Some people just don't care as much about that. They care more about the, the emotional attachment to holding your product, wearing your product, using your product for the first time. So this makes sense for, for a lot of like the things like the price and the weight makes sense for product development. But when we talk about style or emotions, how does though how do how does that kind of data that you got from your from your surveys how does that affect your your marketing like how do you how do, can you use that to to improve your messaging or your marketing of your products yeah so i'll say one thing i did in the beginning for the product that was really useful is I had found a bunch of helmets um, that other people had made before, and I had a bunch of friends come over to my house one night, and I had them just hold different helmets, and each of them told me why they liked certain ones, and each of them why told me why they didn't like certain ones, but I never asked them to describe, would you buy this? It was more just like, how do you feel? And you know, when some people touch some helmets, they're like, well, this helmet feels cheap, or this helmet feels expensive, or this helmet feels like it'd be really safe, and this one feels like it'd be really like unsafe. So for me, like trying to understand what drove people's like psychological and emotional reactions to product was really important. And that really informed our marketing later on too. So like the key features that people really liked in our helmet, I always, I always, one thing I never tried to do was I always try to put the product in front of people. I kind of gave kind of our um, elevator speech and I would always listen to the first one or two things people were saying to me back. And those one or two really important things people were saying to me back always became our main marketing points. So I always kind of let the consumer tell me what they wanted and what was important to them versus me telling what they wanted. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. And so you also touched on how you created these customer profiles based on on this feedback. How in depth were you getting with these customer profiles? How, how much were you just? How, how important is it to? Uh, I guess how, how deeply did you describe that that customer? Yeah, I mean, for me, the customer profiles in the beginning were really important. So I mean, they were when I wrote out these profiles, they were fully formed humans. Like if you if I read off the profiles, you could tell you could you could say, oh, that's my mm -hmm. friend Eric. So I wrote I remember writing one profile. I think um, the customer profile is Eric. Eric's 26. He's from Los Angeles. He works at a tech company. He just got a big promotion. But um he still likes biking to work every single day because he's environmentally friendly. On the weekend, Eric likes to, you know, drink beers with his friends and go biking um, around the city. So mm -hmm. again, like, it, you, for me, like the customer profiles weren't like an exercise I did. They were, they were long thoughtful. They were long thoughtful. Like, kind of, it was a process I went through to understand like who's who's the end user going to be for this. Got it. And was the, the profile a result of the research you did or did you like throw this profile against, like, how, how did you, how did you validate or maybe even iterate over this profile to make sure that you actually had the right customer? Yeah, for me, like, if I'm honest, it's funny. I learned that uh, some of our customer at the beginning was a lot of these customer profiles we'd written and some of the profile and some of it wasn't. Um, I would say the big bulk was. So I think we make bike helmets for riders that are recreationalists um, and also people who are commuters. And for me, I had really thought the majority of our customers were going to be recreationalists, probably even split male, female. 
But at the end of the day, um, because the bike industry, I would say for at least early adopters is heavily male. It, a lot of our demographic ended up being a lot different than I thought it would be at the end of the day. So it also helped, it also kind of refocused me into changing our marketing strategy later on and beyond our marketing strategy, potentially our product offerings. Again, mm-hmm. to kind of, again, always to, to service the customer versus trying to go after a certain customer is, is how I right. thought of it. Yeah. The idea is to have this custom profile as a starting point, but you have to adapt and be flexible to, to change and to have it evolve depending on, on where on what kind of market kind of evolves or comes out from, from, your, from your marketing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Now, can you describe how you're using the, the profile these days, like on a daily or weekly, like on a, on a practical day-to-day basis? How do you actually use your customer profile? Yeah, so now I would say it's, it's just kind of how we've decided um, to run the company in a lot of the ways. Part of our mission is to design human-centered tools for urban travelers. And the reason we say the word human-centered is I think you can design product from a product line perspective to say, how do I fill gaps in the market? Um, but you're never really asking the question, is my brand equipped to do it? Is there a real customer need from it? So I think more than anything, every time we design a product, we we ask ourselves key questions about who we are as writers. And if we would use the product, we ask our friends if they would use the product. Um, and then we always kind of keep those profiles in mind from when we're designing to say, this is the customer and would they use it like it? And mm-hmm. if they don't, even if it's really cool or really um, PR worthy or marketable and we, we toss it out because it's it's not valuable to that kind of that customer yeah it's, it's, like a, it's like a balance it sounds like where you are using these profiles these customer profiles as a filter but at the same time it needs to be flexible so that it does change based on the feedback that you're getting from the market how do you think about this balance and this on this on based on a given piece of feedback decide if that should mean that oh it hasn't made it past the customer profile filter versus let's change the pro- customer profile because we're getting this feedback yeah so i would say like Doing this kind of stuff is kind of like event planning in the sense that like you have to make sure your event is set up for success in every single way possible by making sure you've booked the caterer, by making sure there's chairs and there's decorations and you've sent out the invitation list. But the day of the event, you have no idea what's going to happen. 50 people could drop out of the event and you're going to have to adapt immediately. It could start raining. Um, the, the caterer's food could just not show up because the van broke down. So it's having to be, it's a, I think, a misconception in startups is to say, if I plan nothing and I just kind of start going out into the market and figuring something out, something good will happen to me. Because for me, you may never find it because you haven't done the research, planning, and preparation. But on the second, on the flip side, if you're too stringent with your planning preparation and you're not willing to move once you see your target is moving, then you'll also die in the vine because, mm-hmm. again, you're not going to get it 100% right when you kind of put together your perfect plan. Um, humans are a lot different than what you write down on what's going to happen on a forecast. Right. So moving along this, uh, this topic of iteration, I'm, I'm looking at the, the products on your, on your, on your site. Now I'm assuming that this wasn't the, the, the original design and has gone through iteration, gone through redesigns as any other product has gone through. What was that process like of starting from the early prototypes to going through iterations and arriving at a design that was ready for market? Yeah. I would say a couple of things. So the helmet design is really funky in the sense that you kind of have to build a fully formed product um, because 
certain things you have to do in helmet design are different mm-hmm. because you have to pass safety certification at the end of the day. So it's not like a product in like software where it's highly iterative or even fashion where you can just change your tech packs real quick and, you know, you can change your production 60 days later. For helmets, I would say you have to have like 95% done before you get to production. And after production, you have an opportunity to iterate on that 5-10%. That doesn't affect kind of certification and impact safety testing. So the, um, at least in my industry, there's a lot of upfront work where you're like very planned and methodical about how you launch product. And after you launch it, then you just kind of iterate from there on colors, materials, and finishes. Got it. And so talk to us about this, this uh, safety certification. It's certainly not, like you're mentioning, it's not a, a obstacle that lots of other industries have to go through, but certainly when it comes to things like bike safety, what was the, what kind of certifications do you have to go through? What, what was it like? For sure. I mean, um, the big testing you have to pass for helmets is CPSC and CE testing. And it's basically a long list of certifications that the U.S. government and the European Union put together to say your helmets are compliant for safety regulations here. So that means like your helmets have to be able to pass um, kind of like extreme conditions in like freezing temperature, really hot temperature and raining conditions. And they have to be able to survive a certain amount of impact when you drop it from a two, two foot, like a two story, when you drop it from a two story building, like Mm -hmm. it's going to, it's going to absorb a certain amount of force. So like, there's all these things you have to design for in the beginning. So right, right when you're doing the initial designs, um, you actually build it in clay. So one little known thing, I think, again, in our high tech age is a lot of um, product design is still done in clay. Uh, Cars are still done in clay. A lot of the times helmets are just done in clay more than anything, because it's, it's easier to iterate on. Um, If you do stuff in 3d printing or 3d CAD, while it may look technically great in the computer, there's something different about holding a product in your hand to see how it's going to fit on your head, how every line's going to hit in the light. Uh, so that's where designing the beginning in clay is really important. Mm-hmm. Now, when you were going through the certification, safety certification process, did you have to hire expertise or how were you able to navigate these, the waters? Yeah, totally. A part, yeah, hiring expertise for us was a big one. Uh, we had a, a industrial designer named John who had been designing helmets for 20, 30 years. He's designed for the biggest brands and he's designed for smaller brands for like, like us. Um, and working with someone like him, it's really having to understand every single millimeter of the helmet because in helmet design, every single millimeter does count. So once you kind of design those specs like to the millimeter, um, from there you kind of put that into 3D CAD, you, you do 3D prints, you validate those, and then you make molds. So if, as long as you have really that first part down, you, you've, you've really overcome your biggest barrier uh, in, in the kind of whole testing process. Mm-hmm. And what was your process for finding, finding your expert? Yeah, for, for me, it was kind of, you know, I really didn't know where to start in helmets. Um, I, I definitely never thought I'd be doing this in life. Mm-hmm. So when I first started, I just started going to trade shows. I just found, I typed in bike trade show. Um, I found out there was like one or two in the U.S. I could be going to. And I emailed, I think I just LinkedIn messaged or I emailed every freelance industrial designer in the helmet space that I could find. And really, it wasn't too hard of a search. There's only like, four, there's only like five or six in the U.S. 
so it's the, the strategy became, how do you get the best of the best to work with you? And how do you get the best of the best to work with you with like very little money was the, was my question I had to figure out. Um, but yeah, for me, I just started going to trade shows, started making contacts, uh, just started always asking for introductions. Anyone who was in my industry, I would always grab a copy with and I said, hey, is there anyone else you think I should meet? And that's how I, I kind of built um, kind of like industry knowledge in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Well, what was the answer to that question then about how to get the leading experts in the in the industry to, to work with you when you have limited budgets and you're just starting out? I think um, for us, it's because thousands started on a mission. For us, we mm-hmm. always had the goal of changing the way people see a bike helmet so you could save lives, so you can encourage cycling within cities. And because of that, when I, when I told people that was my reason, um, the people who came along with us in the beginning also wanted to help solve that problem. Got it. So you had a mission and was, it was beyond just a business exchange. You had some mission, you had a store, you had something larger than yourself. And because of that, people were more willing to, to work with you because they also believed in the vision. Uh, and when you, yeah. what's your, I guess, what's your input when you, your input or your, your participation when you have an expert, a leading expert with so much experience? Because I think a lot of entrepreneurs can get wrapped up in this, you know, whatever, whatever you think is best, right? They, they kind of have to, they get wrapped up in, in, in just lean on the expert too much. But obviously it's your company, is your design. You have to have your own input. What's your experience in dealing with that kind of situation? Yeah, that's such a good, that's such a good question, Felix, because I think that's one of the biggest things you get thrown off on as an early entrepreneur, because you kind of feel like I'm this early entrepreneur. I don't know a lot. And this expert certainly knows a lot more than me. So I'll say this. It is really important to listen to experts when they have technical knowledge. And it's really important to listen to experts when uh, you can see both of your points of views are lined up and directionally you want to go in the same place. Mm. But with that said, just because they're an expert, it really doesn't mean you should listen to them. Um, because I will say we had a lot of experts in the beginning say, you should make product this way. Again, people who t- told me who were experts um, actually did tell me to make put you know Bluetooth in the helmet. Uh, and these guys have been working in the industry for like 20, 30 years at this point. A lot of experts in the beginning told me there was no market for what we were doing. And again, there's certain things you have to kind of say, this is my vision. This is as an entrepreneur, I think you have to have some self-belief to say, hey, this is my this is my vision, this is my mission. And at the end of the day, I think I see something that not everyone sees. And I think you have to be really confident in that point of view. But in terms of being collaborative with people, in terms of understanding, some people will always know more than you to take in those inputs, but to also run that through a filter to say, does this line up with one, my customer? Does this line up with my vision and vision? And if it doesn't, no matter how smart they are, more, how much more experienced they are to ultimately be able to, as an entrepreneur, say, okay, then I'm going to scrap it. Mm, got it. I think, I think you touched on it perfectly where you have to own the, the business, own the brand, own the, the vision that you've created. And you're not the one that just, you know, threw it out there, then let someone else carry it across whatever finish line they want to carry it across. It's, it's your, your race and you have to, to have experts help you in the race. But again, it's yours to run. So you you've 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 been through it and you've seen it at a more mature level at times going through the product development process. You mentioned earlier about the milestones that you had to hit with Thousand and the, the milestones that you've seen at times. What are some of the the major ones along the way that were were common themes that that you recognize between a, st- a small company, a startup, and then a much larger company like Tom's? Yeah, for for me, honestly, so much of it has to do with like 
project management. It's such a like unsexy thing to talk about, but like, I, I think in a startup, a lot of people are attracted to startups because it's such like the wild west and you kind of get to do and kind of control your outcomes. And, but because of that, some people kind of like aren't structured, um, because they're so like caught up in their dreams and their passions. But to make anything successful, you have to have like great planning, preparation, great execution, implementation. And that only happens if you've really like plotted it out. And you've really asked yourself, am I executing on this well in terms of quality, in terms of budget, in terms of timing? So like, I think that's, that's, that never changes in any industry you'll ever be in. If it's a big company or a small company, like that's how you achieve great outcomes. Like people can be passionate and people can really believe in something, but unless like you've got, you're not even that you've got the fundamentals. I always think if you're not willing to do the hard work of applying the mm-hmm. fundamentals and doing unsexy things to make your business successful, you, your business might be successful, but it also probably might be in spite of you. Um, like a lot of, the reason you realize people have great businesses from kind of being this couple of years is people just work like dogs, but they're mm-hmm. also diligent and they're also incredibly disciplined. Some of the best entrepreneurs I know, even to this day, when they're doing eight figures, nine figures, they're incredibly disciplined with how they spend their time and how they expend their resources because they know just because they've got that top line business is competitive and it's a risk. So unless you're always kind of making sure you've got a handle on things, things can fall away easily. Mm-hmm. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by discipline with how you spend your time? What, what does that mean to you? Yeah, I mean, for us as an early stage business, um, discipline just means being laser focused on what are my initiatives and objectives every single year. What do I need to do to make sure I'm growing a healthy brand? What do I need to make, do to make sure I'm doing driving top line revenue? And if really the the questions don't answer one of those two, what am I doing to drive a healthy brand? And what am I doing to drive top line revenue? Mm -hmm. Like, honestly, you might, you probably shouldn't be doing it. If you're a business that's bootstrapped, um, because at the end of the day, like, I think, you know, it, Felix, by talking to a lot of entrepreneurs, one of the the number one reason people go out of business is because they run out of cash. So if you're, Mm -hmm. if you're not willing to just kind of sacrifice the things you think that would be so fun and so cool to do, or they would be a big ego boost to you, or they would be a vanity project to you for things that you know are going to inherently add value to the business all the time. My point of view is it's probably not going to go well. Right. I like what you're saying here about the, the questions that you have to answer, because I think when you are starting off, when there's so many different things you can do, you might fall into this trap of thinking that as long as you're answering some question, you're doing right by your business, yes. but you have to be selective in the questions that you're answering. And I think that, I think that, that that's a perfect example of how you need to be disciplined because you can spend your time and make progress in many different avenues, but the, the main question is like, which ones are the most important to 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 building a business, to, to, to reaching the goals that you have for your business? And so you mentioned project management as like the kind of the the hard work, the work behind all the glamour, behind the behind the the, the scenes of, of what actually creates success. Where do you find yourself spending most of your time, uh, let's say the beginning versus now, in terms of project management? Yeah, you know what for for the beginning, it was really just getting everything set up. So the beginning, there was a lot less project management. It was kind of saying, all right, these are the milestones I need to hit. These are the goals I need to hit. You know, I really, and the timelines were shorter because again, like the stuff we were launching wasn't fully formed. And in my opinion, it probably shouldn't have been fully formed because you're a startup and you don't do everything perfect. And and the way that's changed now is uh, 
the thinking is much longer term. In the beginning, when we were thinking about how to launch certain things and how to build out certain programs, we were always thinking about, okay, how do we launch it and how do we build it for this next like two, three months? How do we just get it like off the ground and moving? And now when we start thinking about questions of like how to launch certain initiatives and again, the best kind of direction for the company, we're always thinking in terms of years now. So we're always like, okay, so what are we doing this year versus three years versus five years? So more than anything, it's it's become a lot more strategic and a lot less day to day. Yeah, so you're you're now at least um, in in your in your in your role of the business, you are thinking much more strategically, much more long term. But I'm assuming someone still needs to make the decisions uh, that are you know two months, three months, four months, five months, six months out and down the road, in which you're not maybe as much focused on because you need to think about the bigger vision. How is that? How how are those decisions? I guess delegated uh, as you grow. Yeah, so I mean that's a good that's a good question. So part of it is like I think as an entrepreneur you you always have touch points into short-term and long-term of your business. So, you know, I have to have a grasp on things that are happening a couple of weeks out, but I also have to have a grasp on things that should be happening three, three years out. So like it's being able to balance both. And in terms of delegating and kind of um, understanding how you kind of build a team, uh, I think my point of view has always just been to be, to find people better at you than things um, has, is really important. So understanding like one, where your strengths are, but more importantly, understanding where your weaknesses are. So if I feel like I'm really good at product, um, and brand, then I need to find someone that is great at operations and finance. And from there, once I start finding people who are better at brand than me, I need to give them that responsibility or better at digital than me, then I need to give that person the responsibility. Yeah, that's certainly a common theme I hear from successful entrepreneurs is that they are seeking people to hire people that are always better at than them, at least at something, and hopefully at the at the role they hired them for. I think that the, uh, the feeding kind of mindset that I hear sometimes is, why would someone want to work for me if I don't know what I'm doing, right? How, why would someone in an expert in space or someone even in uh, working the, the books or the finances want to work for me if I have no idea how any of this stuff works? works. What, what's your kind of response to that? Yeah. Um, I think I was just saying more than anything that, uh, at the end of the day, like, I think leadership is often misdefined as being in charge. And I think what leadership really is, is understanding what everyone's strengths are and then making sure they're in the best position to like use those strengths. Mm-hmm. So in, in the, to your question of like, why would someone want to work for me if I just knew less then them, I'm, I mean, honestly, that hopefully in the future should always be the case. I should always know less than the subject matter expert or the person I'm hiring in. The important thing is, am I being a leader in terms of making sure they have the resources to succeed? Am I being a leader because I'm being a clear communicator and communicating to them what they need to be hitting in terms of targets and goals that have a bigger impact in terms of the enterprise value of the company? Um I think those are the kind of the key inputs of leadership, not necessarily who knows the most and who could do the most. Uh, mm-hmm. Cause at the end of the day, that, that responsibility needs to be spread if the, if the organization is going to grow in a really healthy way. Got it. So we'll talk a little bit about the, the marketing and, and, and building the brand behind your, your business. What, what, what kind of uh, activities do you guys go through to that have been effective at driving attention towards the, the store or, or the brand itself? Yeah. I mean, I feel like we've got a lot of channels that kind of drive volume for us. PR kind of does well all day. Organic search for us is really useful because we kind of sit still, the bike helmet, essentially the bike helmet category still sits in the commodity market. 
So organic is still really important and SEO is still really important. Direct, so just building great brand presence from social media events to get great awareness. And then like, again, kind of email is something we're trying to actually do a better job on to, to kind of build up our email list in this next couple of mm-hmm. years. What's the, the, the PR strategy? How do you determine where you should focus your efforts on in terms of getting publicity? Yeah, typically in the past, we've always done it uh, based on product. Uh, product tends, and I wouldn't say it's actually, a, w- w- was a strategy for us. We kind of let our PR firm go for it to say, hey, this is the product. This is our story and our mission. Uh, what are what are you kind of see what you come back with? If I'm honest, that's kind of how we, we, we did it. In, in this year, we're trying to be a lot more intentional. I think we've gotten probably good visibility around what our product is. Um, what we do well and how we're different in the market. But I think one thing we haven't ever really talked about is the mission and vision behind Thousand. Again, uh, I think for me, it'd be it'd be sad if people came to our site and said, oh, that's a cool looking helmet and walked away. Or they that's a cool product and walked away. For me, it's if people understood, hey, this was created for a reason. And this was created, so hopefully one, to keep you safer, and then two, to get you cycling to encourage you to kind of get on your bike and moving around the city for me is a better use of our time for me like if if there's no purpose behind why we're trying to kind of build this industry and to kind of build this product then at the end of the day maybe maybe we're just trying to drive revenue again like Mm -hmm. there wasn't a bigger you know at that point you're not a you're not a brand you're you're probably just a business and that's okay too but for for from my point of view, um, Thousand's original goal and mission was always to change the perception of people. So you do that by becoming a brand. So for, for PR, do you did you hire a PR company or uh, a representative that has experience in the industry, or how do you determine what kind of experts hire in, in that in that regard? Yeah. So originally, um, you know, PR. That's a lesson I took from Tom's. PR was one of Tom's big strategies. In terms of, they were very story oriented. They really wanted to for people to understand what their mission was. So for me, the best approach for me able to be able to do that was um, to hire a PR firm. So th- we, we had actually always retained a PR firm since the beginning to do that. Um, really, first strategy, I bounced around for PR firms. Um, our current one, we're doing it more than anything just because they, they have a lot more industry knowledge than us. Uh, I, I would say we we all collectively, some of us have come from bike, some of us haven't come from bike, but uh, the firm we have c- kind of gone with now, they kind of know our landscape. So more than anything, they're teaching us what, what there is right now. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, I know you said you wanted to 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 have a different strategy towards being maybe being more uh, direct with the, the, the messaging and direct with the, the story behind the brand. What's your involvement? What, what do you foresee as your involvement when you work with a PR firm these days? Yeah, I would, I would actually say I'm pretty hands-on with our PR firm. Um, and I know that kind of, I would say that's probably different for a lot of founders. I think some are hands-on, some are hands-off. Mm-hmm. But I would say uh, my point of view is I'm probably the, the person with the most vested interest in being able to tell our story and our mission well. So for me, that means working with our PR firm a lot of the times to make sure they understand what our mission and vision is and directionally where we always want to be headed as a company. So again, beyond like the cool new things we're doing on a product level or a marketing campaign level, like why is this important to us is, is why I, I always choose to work with our PR firm. 
Got it. And now when it comes to the the design of the website, was this all done in house? Like how, how was it? How was the the store? Uh, if anyone wants to check it out, explore thousand dot com. How was it built? Yeah. So yeah, everything we did was all in house. Um, in the beginning, I had a web developer friend of mine and a designer friend of mine kind of do the whole thing. Uh, we we have both of those roles in house now, and we're actually working on a big relaunch right now. So that should happen. That big relaunch should happen March nineteenth. Got it. And what were some of the conscious decisions that you make or that you are making when it comes to, to the redesign? Yeah, for me, um, e-com is all about eliminating friction for a consumer. So how do you get people, one, to understand very quickly what you do, two, getting them to understand like why the product is valuable to them, um, and then and then from there on out, it's just making the conversion and checkup process as easy as possible. So for us some of the big things we're doing in our relaunch right now is again, making sure we're adding functions and functionality in there to, to, to do that. So we're simplifying our navigation. We're adding a zoom function. We have suggested add-ons. Uh, we're hopefully going to have a back order function again, more than anything. And we're probably going to have an expanded, um, fit guide. So how do you kind of fit this on your head and how mm-hmm. does this helmet look at all angles? We're, so we're doing everything. I think we, we can say, Hey, these would be valuable features and functions for a consumer to help them make a purchasing decision. And from there, we're hoping um, we'll just have higher conversions as a result. And when you mention frictions, is that just like questions that customers might may have or what are some other frictions that you found that you wanted to remove for the customer? Yeah, for me, I mean, friction, I think, can be anything. Friction can be what are all the barriers that people would experience to buying a helmet? That's a friction. But the, the whole another set of questions is what is what are all the what are all the barriers people would have to buying a helmet online? So, again, that's a whole another set of questions you have to answer for. And then also another question of like, why would people want to not buy online in general? So you ask all yourselves these sets of questions and you kind of figure out these are the functions that would solve everything it has been kind of the process we've worked at this with. Yeah, how did you determine what the the frictions or or the the objections or dif- or obstacles your your customers may face? Yeah, I mean, we we've used a lot of tools. Um so we've used something called a hot jar, uh which has been mm-hmm. really useful for us because it kind of heat maps what people hover over, when people kind of drop off in terms of when they stop scrolling. Um we've also kind of done different some A-B testing to kind of see what people respond well to, what people don't respond well to. And we also naturally just kind of always walk through things with a human-centered approach. So when we're trying to make a decision of like what's going to work better, we kind of go onto a website that uses something similar and say, and we all ask ourselves, well, which do we like better around the table? And Mm -hmm. kind of people, we always kind of go with the one that inherently people just like using more. What's, What's easiest for people? What has the most functionality? Because um, we think a better experience will always convert to better uh, sales. Right, and you mentioned simplifying navigation is also important. Uh, when I go to your site, there is a you know a shop button. I click on that, and I see uh, all the the products that I could purchase. Like, what, what else can you do to simplify the navigation for for an e-commerce site? Yeah, I mean, I would say just our top level navigation would be the same. But in terms of helping people find potentially on the collection pages, what are Mm -hmm. our newest colors or what are our most popular colors? Or when you're on that collections page, we have a really important feature called our pop lock. And that's just our logo mark pops out and you can throw any bike lock, you lock through it and lock it up to your bike. A lot of people don't know that on our on our collections page. So how can we potentially put in um, where the where the picture is responsive. So every time you hover over it, it changes so you can see a pop lock through it. Or how do we put that pop lock on the 
homepage more or on the collections page more or a potential call out while you're searching the product page. So for me, navigation means more than just kind of how you get to the shop page, but how you explore the site and how you learn information. Got it. And you mentioned that some of these uh, th- these decisions in the new in the redesign were a result of some A/B testing. Do you remember some useful tests that that you guys were able to run to to uh, pull out some data? Yeah, I would say a lot of it for us was um, understanding something for our fit guide. So for us, one thing we want to do better is again showing people one how it's going to look on your head and how the product fits. One thing we learned from doing a quick test was that when we had an old fit guide in place, um, our add to cart was like a two to one ratio. But when we implemented a new fit guide that was easier to understand, our add to cart ratio was one to one. So again, for us, trying to always think from the perspective of like, how is this going to help the consumer understand if they should purchase or not better? And then two, just doing a quick test and looking at the data has, has been the approach we've always run our econ. Yeah, and you know, speaking of fit guides, what 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 kind of changes did you make to to improve a, a fit guide? Totally, yeah. In the past, we kind of just put a picture up and kind of wrote out instructions. And for us, something really small, but for us, might have just been an emotional point for people was putting numbers to, in the instructions. In in the in the past, it was kind of like a, a little paragraph mm. copy of like this is how you measure your head and all of those different things. But when we did a new fit guide, the big things we did was we we drew out instead of just you know having just a a, f- f- a photograph instead of just having a photograph, we or our designer took the time to kind of draw out these are the three different head sizes, mm-hmm. putting like number one, two, and three, so it felt more step by step, and then simplifying the language. We're all things like we're very intentional on things we thought through, of again of thinking through ourselves. Hey. If I was a customer and I had never done this before, what is the most helpful thing to me? Or what what would I need to see as a consumer to help me understand this is going to be easy and quick and simple to do? Right. So you mentioned a hot jar or something you use to to get data about site visitors. Are there any other tools, whether it be for, for data or for marketing, that you rely on to help run the business? I would say um, in terms of data, a lot of what we use for data is just Google Analytics. We do Hotjar. Uh, I would say we sometimes run, we also run Shopify reports as like supplements. Um, we also pull re- reports from MailChimp. But I would say from a data perspective, those are kind of our biggest tools we use. Got it. And what's the team made up now? How many people or do you have like a, a large team working on, on or I guess how is your team split up? Yeah, the team split up doing a lot of different things. We've got um, a, a guy doing full-time dev for us. We've got a creative director, someone doing ops, someone doing sales, customer service. Uh, we're still a small team really based in L.A. Really, we've built this company bootstrap beyond our kind of Kickstarter backing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really wanted to take the time to build the brand and to really understand the product. So for us, our approach was never to say, hey, let's, grab a bunch of investor money and dump capital into it and see if this thing works or not. For us, the goal was always to build a long-term brand that in 10, 20 years, you would understand thousands built on quality, thousands built on a mission, thousands built on solving my barriers so I could get on my bike and start riding more. And for us, that didn't necessarily align with saying, how big can we make this year one or two? It was to say, how can we make this the best company um, year after year? So in five years, in 10 years, thousands going to be a lasting brand. 
Mm-hmm. And you mentioned a little bit earlier in the episode about how you, you do listen to or, or at least follow with other entrepreneurs and seeing what they, uh, what's led to their success. Are there any blogs or books or other resources that, that you are a big fan of for, for self-education? Yeah, um, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, Masters of Scale is a good one for startups. Um, I listen to How I Built This uh, on NPR. Um, startup off of Gimlet is pretty good. More than anything, I think just understanding like consumer pers- again, like hearing other entrepreneurs and where they have gone right and gone wrong has been really helpful mm-hmm. for me. Just to understand like what are you know what are the mistakes I can hop if I just knew a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And then two, like always learning again is is like super super key. I think when you're an entrepreneur, because um, sometimes as you scale, it's not a matter of like your intelligence. It's really a matter of your your subject matter expertise and knowledge at some points. So, I think I, I would say at least per week I put in at least like ten hours per week, making sure I'm like, I'm always learning to how I can make the business better. Awesome. So explore1000.com is the website. Thank you so much for your time, Gloria. So other than the the redesign that we we talked about, what are the big plans you have for for the business? Yeah, I mean, the business, I'm really excited about the different kind of um, activations we're doing this year. This year, we're launching a little community space. Uh, Again, for riders, more than anything to learn about bike safety, um, how to cycle more to do group rides on. Uh, We're doing a lot of great campaigns and little spotlights uh, for videos. So we're going to do a Be Local campaign where we're going to spotlight local riders and entrepreneurs around the community. And beyond that, I think we're more than anything refocusing on how do we get people to ride more? Um, And again, how do we get people who are interested in biking but always felt cautious or unsafe to say, hey, maybe this is an option to kind of get under the tent with us. So that's really our main focus this year at Thousand. Awesome. Thank you again so much for your time, Gloria. Thanks, Felix. Totally appreciate the time. Here's a sneak peek for what's in store in the next Shopify Masters episode. I don't necessarily think narrowing down your customer base is a bad thing. You, you really want customers that understand what you're doing and that appreciate what you're doing. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial. Also, for this episode's show notes, head over to shopify.com slash blog.